Welcome to the Find Empathy podcast, where we discuss the interaction between health and emotions. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted when new episodes launch. My name is Dr. Megan Beyer, a clinical psychologist specializing in chronic illness and disability. We are nearing the end of our first series focused on multiple sclerosis, and our last three topics are going to focus on employment and disability, cognition, and adaptive sports. This is the third and final episode of our employment mini-series. If you haven't yet heard the first two interviews with Kathy Reagan-Young and Joe Stuckey, please go back and listen to those two episodes. Both of those individuals provide amazing information about switching careers, as well as how to request accommodations, and when, how, or even if one should disclose their MS diagnosis to an employer. In this final interview, I talk with Tracy Tyson Miller, a disability attorney who specializes in multiple sclerosis. Tracy takes a lot of the mystery out of the disability process, and she also speaks specifically to what mental health providers should include in letters of support if that is requested by one of your patients. Keep listening and consider sharing with your patients if they have questions about this process. Tracy, thank you so much again for agreeing to be part of this project. I'd love for you to share with me a little bit about who you are, your career, and how you got to be working with multiple sclerosis. Well, my name is Tracy Tyson Miller. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, and I handle social security disability claims, which I've done since about 1995. Uh, Around the same time that I started doing this type of legal work, my sister was diagnosed with MS and my father had previously been diagnosed with MS. So I just took an extra interest in those cases generally when they crossed my desk. Um, After I opened up my own practice a few years later, I got involved with the North Florida Multiple Sclerosis Society and just, you know, just started working more with MS people and volunteering. I did some seminars for the MS Society or I would also do fundraising for them, things like that. Just sort of that personal connection in connection with the work I was already doing. So now I handle a lot of multiple sclerosis cases. Great. Yeah. So it sort of grew organically. It sounds like. It definitely did. I always have a lot. I I don't want to say a lot, but I always have a a fair, I always have multiple cases, multiple sclerosis cases going at any Mm -hmm. given time, usually five to eight, I would say, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty large percentage of my practice. I have a pretty small practice, only handle about a hundred cases at a time. We recently did a webinar together where we talked about financial planning as well as applying for disability. And one of the things that I found really useful um, that you shared was thinking about financial planning early after your diagnosis. Um, So can you share a little bit about what recommendations you would give to somebody that was newly diagnosed with MS? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing to do is obviously take care of your health, but beyond that, the thing a person shouldn't do is knee jerk and quit their job and think they can't work anymore because many times the type of MS you have may present suddenly, but also it's sort of an episode that you're having and Mm -hmm. your symptoms will taper off. So the best thing to do is to continue to work at whatever level you can and continue to save money. Usually if you've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, it's very difficult to get private disability insurance. But if you have private disability insurance prior to the onset of that, 
impairment or the diagnosis, you want to make sure you're continuing to pay those premiums on a regular basis. Additionally, if there is any disability that is offered by your employer, you definitely need to take advantage of that. And, you know, you had shared a lot about continuing to work and the importance of trying to keep working for as long as possible. I know a lot of people that I work with experience uh, challenges at work and may need to apply for accommodations. And I know that's maybe not your area of specialty, but can you just share your experience with, you know, who is eligible for job accommodations and what that process looks like? Well, you know, there's a there's a difference between being technically or legally eligible for accommodations and being just personally, you know, just having those accommodations available because you are a dedicated employee. Almost any employer will help you if you have been loyal to that employer and been a good employee, showed up on time, uh, Mm -hmm. not taking excessive absences out of the office, those kinds of things. So, Generally, if you're sharing that information with your employer, they will be willing to help you out to some degree. I don't know who's technically uh, able to have a job accommodation. I sense that you might have to work for a larger employer, over 50 employees, but don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also a a family medical leave act, which you can take in order to, um, you know, take care of yourself. I think that you can do that with a larger employer as well. And note that your caregiver can also apply for family medical leave back for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's really helpful. Um, a lot of times I have people who sort of struggle with whether or not they should disclose their diagnosis to their employer. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations around that? It's such a personal individual choice. Some people are very uncomfortable talking about their medical problems with an employer. And Mm -hmm. sometimes your employer can be your best friend, literally and figuratively in these kinds (laughs) of situations. Almost everybody knows somebody who has MS. It is a very sympathetic impairment. Everyone has seen somebody struggle with the problems. And while you go to your employer and explain your problems, you know, they may be sympathetic, they can help you. But on the other hand, they may have seen people who are completely incapacitated and they may be fearful about allowing you to continue to work. So it really, really depends on your personal assessment of that relationship. And maybe how you've seen other employees treated who have other medical issues or personal issues that come up while working. A hundred percent. I really agree with everything that you just said. And it is very individual. Um, it really is. I mean, my secretary, if my secretary came to me and said she had multiple sclerosis, I would say, great, but I really need you to be cognitively sharp. We can make a lot of accommodations for a, lo- a lot of things, but I rely on you 100% to keep track of things. So unless you have a good system and I'll help you come up with one, the cognitive is much more important than the physical issues. Yeah. And research backs that up. You know, a lot of times when I see people who are leaving their job or needing accommodations or even needing to switch jobs, a lot of times it's for fatigue or cognitive reasons. A lot of times the physical disabilities really can be accommodated pretty well. They really can. I mean, it would be no problem if my assistant couldn't walk. I could work around that. If my assistant mm-hmm. had some trouble with her hands, we could organize some drag and dictation, for instance, or where she didn't have to type so much. Um, mm-hmm. She has a headset for the phone, so she's pretty hands-free at the phone. Um, so it really, really, it depends on the problems you're having and 
your relationship with your employer and just your individual thoughts on, you know, what you have experienced or others have experienced with your employer. Right. Well, and I think that kind of gets to, you know, as people are starting to struggle at work or they're experiencing symptoms that are getting in the way of work, they might start thinking, when do they apply for social security disability or when do they think they should start thinking about that? What's your recommendations there? Well, it's interesting because I'll have people call me before they stop working and say, I'm thinking about not working. Then I'll have people who've been out of work for eight years who haven't applied for benefits because they keep thinking they're going to get back to work. So mm-hmm. the answer is definitely in between those two timeframes. <laughs> um, I think it's great if you have a situation where you think you're going to need to stop working or you think your employer is going to fire you because they can't, uh, you can't do the job and you know you can't work for somebody else and that you're just sort of hanging on at this job, those are good times to call an attorney and get some general information. Almost any social security attorney will talk to you for free. And if you call somebody that only puts you through their intake person and won't talk to you, just try another attorney. There's definitely Mm -hmm. plenty of them who will talk to you. But I think that when you want to apply for disability is when you feel like you are going to be unable to work for a full year. When you are getting to the sense, you know, you get to the sense where the fatigue is overtaking you, the cognition is limiting you, your hands aren't working well, um, you're not walking well and you do a job that requires a lot of walking, like, I don't know, um, like you're doing road construction or something heavy like that. What you don't want to do is immediately stop working because you have a flare up and apply for disability because those flare ups can calm down and applying for disability is I wouldn't say it's arduous, but there is a lot of paperwork and documents and things to keep track of. So you just want to have the sense that you're not going to be able to maintain work for at least a full year. And by full year, I mean 365 days. If you are able to return to work after 11 months and 29 days, you will not be eligible for social security benefits. You really have to be out for a full year. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between short-term disability through a private insurer, long-term yeah. disability through a, through a private insurer and social security disability? So short-term disability can be typically anywhere from a few months to about two years. And those benefits are typically, typically own occupation based. So if you cannot perform the work you are doing, you can mm-hmm. be found disabled on a short-term basis. Long-term disability typically would last until your full retirement age, which for people my age, I'm 53, would be 66 years old. And those can also be own occupation policies where you can't do the job that you used to do. But some of them also have a any occupation clause where perhaps after you've been receiving benefits for some number of months or years, they stop looking at whether you could do your own occupation and look at whether you could do any occupation that exists in the national economy. Uh, That can be a hard standard to meet, but many people with MS really do have a combination of fatigue, cognition, and physical limitations that would prevent that from happening. Most of the disability benefits that are paid through a long-term provider are going to be offset by social security benefits. So if you Mm -hmm. apply for long-term disability, and let's just say they're going to give you $1,500 a month, Mm -hmm. they may also require you to file for social security disability. And if social security gives you 
perhaps $1,000 a month, your long-term disability provider will reduce your benefits by $1,000. There's no way around that. It's part of the policy. It's uh, that particular factor is built into the premium. Um, so you can't, there's just no way around it. Your long-term disability providers usually do not require social security to find you disabled, just that if you are found disabled, they will reduce your benefits. Now, social security disability benefits are sort of a combination of own occupation and any occupation. If you are under the age of 50, social security will have to find that you cannot do any occupation that exists in the national economy. If you are over 50, they start looking at the work you've done and whether your skills could transfer to other work given the limitations that you have. So those rules relax at age 50, at age 55, I think again at 62. You just need to think about how your problems are limiting you and whether they prevent you from doing anything. One thing that I found really helpful during our webinar was when you talked about how people could prepare to apply for social security, even if they never need it, right? So what are some of the recommendations that you give people, uh, or you might give somebody who's newly diagnosed in terms of preparing to potentially have to apply for social security disability? Well, the first thing that everybody needs to do is set up an account with the Social Security Administration. It's at ssa.gov. And I think there's something called My Account or something like that. They tried to brand it. But set up a Social Security account and go into that account and see what your disability payment would be. And you want to make sure that you are insured for benefits by continuing to work and earn. Right now, I think you have to earn about $6,500, maybe $7,000 a year to continue to be insured for disability benefits. As you pay social security taxes, it's like paying an insurance premium to the social security administration. So you have to keep paying those premiums in order to qualify for social security disability. So some people may never qualify because they have never worked or they haven't worked prior to filing for disability. You usually have to work five out of the last 10 years. There is also a welfare component that people can apply for, which is I can't work, I have never worked, and I'm extremely poor. Mm-hmm. And I mean extremely. If you have any household income, um, or if your spouse works, or if you have more than $3,000 in the bank, 2000 if you're single, you will not qualify for this SSI welfare benefit, but it is available. Um, It's just something to, and it's a pretty minimal benefit. It's about $800 a month and it comes with Medicaid, which is great, but to qual, but when you qualify for social security disability via the taxes you paid to the social security administration, that actually comes with Medicare, which people tend to prefer. So that's the first thing, get your account and keep working. Those are the most important things. The other thing you'll want to keep track of would be your doctors and your hospitalization so that you can show a pattern of the problems that have led to you not working. With social security, they're really looking at when you stopped working and why you stopped working. So some people apply because they had a heart attack and never recovered or an MS flare and they just never got back to a level where they could work. Other people, and I would think that it's more common with Mm -hmm. people who have MS, it's just a buildup of problems. Like your employer is able to tolerate your fatigue and gives you extra breaks. Your employer is able to tolerate your inability to walk by having other people cover some of the walking duties of your job. Like perhaps if you're in an office, somebody else is bringing you files and you don't have to lift things, but eventually 
your problems can get so um, limiting that you really aren't able to work and your employer can't really accommodate you anymore. So you just sort of want to have the medical records that document the problems. So I would say that, let's say it's January and you notice your problems are getting worse, but your employer is still helping you. Make sure you report to your doctor in January. It's getting harder to do my job because I am more fatigued, because my cognition seems to be slowing, because my hands aren't working, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Report the symptoms to your doctor on a regular basis prior mm-hmm. to stopping work. What you don't want to do is think in your head, oh, I'm really tired. I can't think straight and I'm having more trouble walking. I'm just going to stop working. And then you go to the doctor six or seven months later and report your symptoms. Like Mm -hmm. you really want to have the documentation in line prior to the application. I wonder if, you know, for our system, for example, we have the Epic system and we use my chart, which means that uh, patients are able to write into us and uh, those messages become part of their medical record. Would that be something that people could do where they could report their symptoms kind of on a semi-regular basis to their doctors that way as well? Yes, I think that's a great idea, but nothing beats a focal neurological exam. Although it's true that some things just aren't showing up. I mean, if you're having cognitive problems and you go to your neurologist, they're gonna ask you some pretty basic things like, can you spell world backwards? Do you know what date? <laughs> Do you know the present? Right. I mean, a lot of people know those things. It's, they're not that hard, but they still cannot focus on tasks at their job that are a little bit more complex than what day it is. And can you identify the president? So mm-hmm. they may want to send you out for a cognitive exam or something like that, which would be great, but it's not always warranted by, because if you can spell world backwards, maybe you, your doctor doesn't think you need that. I would definitely hope that you would, that every person is with a doctor they feel like they can trust and a doctor who's doing the best thing that, you know, the best things to provide care and documentation of the problems. But again, yes, the symptom reporting is great, but you also want the doctor's, the doctor's notes about those things as well. Right. Well, and you make a really good point about the cognitive tests. So um, the MOCA, the mini mental, there's good data that shows that those are not necessarily great for MS. Um, they don't pick up on subtle changes. Um, and so getting a good cognitive evaluation is really ideal if we're noticing changes in cognitive functioning, but it's challenging, right? There's a lot of parts of the country where there's not neuropsychologists readily available, or even in our area, people are waiting up to six, seven, even eight months to get appointments with neuropsychologists to get cognitive evaluations. So it is a challenge, but I, I like what you said, sort of going to your doctor and sharing those symptoms um, so that they are documented over time. Yeah, that is a good, it's generally just a good it's a good way to show that pattern. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if a person is waiting for a, a neurocognitive evaluation for six or seven months, a lot of times the judges or social security will note that they have these problems and whatever problems they had, at least the doctor thought it warranted intervention. Right. So sometimes the date of the referral is a good date for social security to look toward in terms of when your problems were getting worse. How do you, how does social security define disability? So they're looking for a person who has an inability to engage in substantial gainful activity for a period of 12 months. And by substantial gainful activity, 
they typically mean an inability to earn more than about $1,300 a month. And that would be a gross figure, not net. So you could earn $1,300 and then they take taxes out. But if you earn $1,500 or $1,600, even if you receive less than $1,300, that is not what they're looking for. They're looking for that firm gross figure of about, I think it might be 1310 or 1340 this year. But again, the definition of disability can be different depending on your age. So under 50, you have to be found unable to do any type of work. And over 50, they will look at your work skills. There's also something called a listing. So that if your MS is so bad that um, you meet certain requirements, Social Security can find you disabled. I'm going to pull that up right now and read it to you. It's very, it's very, um, I guess I would say it's sort of squishy. It's not okay. like, like some of the listings would be something like if you are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer at stage four, I mean, I made that up, you will be found disabled. Or if mm-hmm. you have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, you will be found disabled. So some mm-hmm. things you just need a diagnosis or maybe you broke your leg and your femur hasn't healed for over 12 months. Like that is automatically disabling. But for Mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis, it's just, you know, a lot of the multiple sclerosis symptoms are a little soft. They're not, Mm -hmm. you can't just x-ray somebody and say, oh, this person can't work. You can't even take a brain MRI and say, oh, there's a lesion on this part of the brain. So you can't work. It's much more how you're affected. So I am gonna read the definition disorganization of motor function in two extremities resulting in an extreme limitation in the ability to stand up from a seated position balance while standing or walking or use the upper extremities so you need to have that or something else so that's the first way usually if you need a walker to walk or a wheelchair you will be found to have an extreme limitation in your balance while standing or walking Mm -hmm. um extreme limitation, the ability to use your upper extremities. They give a lot of examples, but it's not just you can button buttons or you can't, you can cook or you can't, you can take a shower and wash your hair or you can't. It's just sort of how everything is going. Mm -hmm. The other way that social security can find you as automatically disabled would be if you have a marked limitation and there's a long definition of marked in physical functioning and a marked limitation in one area of cognitive functioning. Um, There's four areas. One would be understanding, remembering, or applying information. The second one is interacting with others. The third one is concentrating, persisting, or maintaining pace. And the last one is adapting or managing oneself. So again, those are all very, very squishy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might, you might look at this and say, oh, I definitely, I definitely have that. Like I definitely have, um, a marked limitation in my ability to understand, remember, and apply information. And you can believe that and your doctor can believe it, but it's still very hard to convince social security that you have that particular limitation without some solid evidence from a, like a neuropsychological report. Let me tell everybody where to find that. If you want to review it, you can just go to ssa.gov, search for listings or search for multiple sclerosis listings. The listing is 11.09 and there are many, many cross-references in this listing to, for instance, what an extreme limitation is, what a marked limitation is, what interacting with others means. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight separate references. Great. That's super helpful information. 
how long does it take to apply for disability or what is that process like? Well, it's changed, especially since COVID. I used to tell people you could apply and it would take anywhere from five to six months to get a decision. And if you were turned down, you would file an intermediary step, which again would take maybe four to five months. And then you would wait for a hearing if you were turned down again. So waiting for a hearing would used to take 18 to 24 months. I mean, it was a very, very long process. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of reversed. The first steps can take nine or 10 months, the first two mm-hmm. steps, and then getting a hearing is pretty quick. That can be only maybe six months. Now we're waiting for a hearing, but it's still, I would say generally it's taking a year and a half to get a decision or maybe more just depends. If you see 10 doctors, it's harder for social security to pull your records together. If you're undergoing a lot of care and your condition is changing a lot, social security will hold your file to get those updates. And that can be, that can take a long time. Um, And then when you get to the hearing, it's the hearings are going much, much smoother right now. And their wait time is not, not long. But most people who have multiple sclerosis are generally seeing one to three doctors. I would say that they're generally seeing a neurologist. They might be seeing a primary care physician and maybe maybe somebody for psychiatric or cognitive issues. They also may have some hospitalizations that are going in and out. But overall, people with MS are not seeing significant number of doctors. So that can make the process go a little earlier. But still, I'm floored by how long it takes Social Security to pull things together. Yeah. And that's a good point for what you said earlier. If, if you can know ahead of time that this is going to take a long time, you can kind of prepare for that. Right. That's why you do not want to be, you don't want the first time you're thinking about disability benefits to be when you need to stop working. It just goes back to needing to save some money and um, just sort of plan for that, plan for that. Right. I, the, the most common question I probably have on a regular basis is what am I supposed to do while social security is working on my case? And mm-hmm. I don't really have any good answers. I mean, that's just not particularly my area. People do all sorts of things. They move in with their family. Their husband is working and supports them. They have to move to a homeless shelter. They, mm-hmm. you know, lose their house. They are evicted. I mean, all sorts of things happen, but I don't really have any good ways for people to collect money for two years while they're waiting for a social security case to go through. So the best answer is to prepare financially for that. Right. Well, and that brings up a good question. I often get asked if people can work during their application or after they receive social security, if they're approved. Um, Do you have any good answers for that? Uh, I have some answers. I don't know if I have the best answers. I personally think I mean, every attorney will tell you this. It is much easier to show that a person cannot work if they are not working. Mm -hmm. But again, the social security definition is an inability to to engage in substantial gainful activity. So they're looking at that $1,300 figure. So if you are earning less than $1,300, social security is not really supposed to count that, but it really depends on what you're doing for that $1,300. If you are out, doing landscaping and earning $1,300, it shows that you have some capacity to do heavier things. If you are working as a substitute teacher or a secretary who fills in when you're, you know, like through like a temporary service, those are more demonstrative of overall problems that prevent you from working regularly. 
Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, you can, you know, you can have a doctor who has multiple sclerosis that goes into an office and works with people, you know, one day a month and maybe mm-hmm. earn $1,300. You also have somebody who's working a minimum wage job where they're working. I mean, you can, I'm, I'm not going to get my calculator out, but you can work a lot of hours in a month and um, still only receive $1,300. So it's sort of a balance that and those that all that information is while you're applying for benefits. Once you have received social security benefits, there are a lot of incentives to help people work. They can continue to work. Um, well, I don't want to say continue. They can start working under something called a trial work period. You can work and earn, I think up to that $1,300 point for, I think you can earn as much as you want for nine non-consecutive months in a 60 month period. So you could, you know, it allows people to take on some special projects and earn some money, but then stop working for a while. So you can earn as much as you want for nine months. Um, But after the ninth month, if you ever go over that $1,300 figure, they stop your benefits for that month. And if you do it too frequently, they will cut your benefits off altogether. So the best answer is to just do some minimal work. Can you share if you, if you know what the percentages are of success for people who apply for social security disability? Well, I want to say that at the, at the first level, at the initial level, I want to say it's about 30% of people are approved because many people have significant problems, not that multiple sclerosis isn't a significant problem, but significant problems that are going to lead to death or are so objectively terrible. You know, Mm -hmm. they have, like I say, ALS or something along those lines, or they're 62 years old and they just had their hip replaced and their past work was building houses. Mm -hmm. So all of those are in there too, but definitely multiple sclerosis is, is an impairment that is approved more than many other impairments. The top two, I've read this, I can't verify it, but I did read recently that the number one and two impairments that are paid the most frequently by social security are multiple sclerosis and cancer. Mm. which is interesting because the, the problem I see the most is back pain and depression. Those are the most common reasons a person is applying for disability, but I guess they're just not being paid at the, at the rate that people who have multiple sclerosis or cancer are being paid. Um, at the second level, the reconsideration level, social security is really just looking at, did we make a mistake? Did we miss some medical records that show something or mm-hmm. did something new happen? Like you can apply for benefits and you're turned down. And when you're in the midst of filing that second, that second, the first appeal, the second level, the request for reconsideration, maybe you get into a car accident and all of a sudden you, you know, broken multiple bones. So they're Mm -hmm. looking for something new, something they missed, or just a flat out error. Most of those things are not happening. So I would say maybe 10% of those cases are paid. At the hearing level, I think it's between 50 and 60% of the cases are being paid, probably about 60. Okay. More cases are paid with an attorney, but that's just because the attorney is pulling things together and making sure the judges aren't really overlooking anything. It doesn't really have to do with much else other than an attorney is, oh, like pulling together a, a statement from your doctor or... Mm-hmm just like holding the judges feet to the fire on certain issues. So, I mean, definitely. Plus I, I just think if you have any kind of cognitive issues at all, you should not be trying to handle your own case. Many people can handle their own cases just fine, but 
you don't know if you're one of those people. Right. It's, it's very similar to like selling your house on your own. Like a lot of people could sell their house without really, you know, and generally receive the same amount of money, less, you know, in a, not counting the broker fee. Um, but there's also so many things that can be missed. So it's sort of the same thing. Okay. Obviously, I think everybody needs an attorney, but <laughs> but all attorneys say that. Yeah, well, I Every often recommend that. What? Yeah, I often recommend that people work with an attorney because I and I, I again I have a biased sample. I work with a lot of people that have cognitive challenges, and they find it very overwhelming to it is manage all the paper. Yeah, it, now, it is overwhelming. I look at these files, and I'm just trying to figure out like when did this person go? Did that test ever get ordered? Where's that record? Why didn't Social Security get that record? I mean, I'm looking at a file right now of somebody who doesn't have um, just doesn't have multiple sclerosis, but they have. Um, like they have some sort of leukemia that's causing problems. Social security requested those records six times and never got them. They also mm -hmm. never called me and said, Hey, uh, you're representing this person. Can you get those records? It wasn't until I got into the file and saw that they just sort of dropped the ball on it. They just sent out requests, but didn't get anything And they're important records. So, mm -hmm. and, and if you go to a hearing by yourself, the judge will probably say, Hey, we don't have those records. Did you know that? And you'll say, what? I don't know what, mm -hmm. I don't know what. And then they may get the records for you. They may not. It just depends on, it depends on what they had for breakfast that morning. And if they're in a good <laughs> mood, like if they fought with their spouse in that morning, they're probably just trying to get your file off their desk. If they ha are having a good morning, they're going to lend a hand. They're the judges, everyone at social security, they're people with individual prejudices and individual you know, predilections to the cases they like and the cases they tend to approve and how much they'll do to help people. Mm -hmm. so. Right. Really good to keep in mind. You know, and you, you referenced getting information from medical providers. And I often get asked by people who are applying for social security to write letters in support of them or to write a letter that documents their cognitive evaluation that they did with me. Can you yeah. share a few things for mental health providers or other medical providers? If, if we are asked for a letter like that, what kinds of things should be included? Well, the first thing that a person should look toward who's providing a letter is if you're inclined, is to look at that multiple sclerosis lift listing and then look at what social security is looking at when they talk about the cognitive uh, limitations. Look at what they mean by understanding, remembering, or applying information or how a person interacts with others. So I'm just gonna go to the understanding, remembering, and applying information because I think it's the most important one. So what social security says about that is, this area of mental functioning refers to the ability to learn, recall, and use information to perform work activities. Examples include understanding learning terms, instructions, procedures, following one or two step oral instructions to carry out a task, describing work activity to someone else, asking and answering questions and providing explanations, recognizing mistakes. These are just examples of what that means. So if a mental health a provider can provide some information about that or shed some light on a person's capacity to do that, that's helpful. And a letter is great, but I also use a 10 question form that mm -hmm. asks something like, let me grab my form real quick and I'll see what it says. Okay. Well, you used to have a longer form, but I've kind of, I've tried to tailor it to the things that really matter. So I ask mental health professionals things like, and I ask them to, I ask them to rate a person's capacity to engage in a certain mental task of work. And I ask them to rate it from one to five. Five means you can't do it. One means you can't 
you are able to do it with no limits. And then two, three, and four, just give a, they assign a percentage of time that you're able to do that at a job. So mm-hmm. I ask about a person's capacity to remember locations and work-like procedures, understand and remember and carry out short, simple instructions, capacity to maintain attention and concentration for at least two hours, to perform activities within a schedule, to sustain an ordinary routine without special supervision. Um, And then I just get into some other questions about whether you're able to get along with other people at Mm -hmm. a job. So I try to do that. And if I can give, if you can give a percentage of time, it's easier to quantify because when I am sitting in a hearing with a letter that says a person has difficulty with concentration, it's hard to turn that into a restriction. But if Uh I have a letter that says a person, this person will not be able to maintain concentration for more than 15 to 20 minutes, then I can talk about that and whether, because I'll be probably talking to a vocational expert and I will have to say, hey, if a person cannot maintain concentration for more than 15 minutes, can they perform their past work or other work? But if I have to go to difficulty with concentration, nobody really knows what that means. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, yeah. I know what it means. It means you can't do it, but, but the, the person who wrote the letter is trying to be not super negative about you. I know exactly yes. what it means, but legally it means something different. Right. Well, and that's, that's the rub, right? When I get asked to write these letters, you know, in the rehab world, I want to help people get better. And then I'm writing a letter that's saying they can't do things. And it's, right. it's a very tricky situation to be working in a position wanting to improve people as much as they can, but then also documenting that they can't do those things and understanding that they might read that letter and say, well, what about all these things you've been telling me about getting better? It's, it is very tricky. No. And it's one reason I really, I used to give people their files and I will give anyone their file who wants it, but I just keep them now because nobody wants to read those things about themselves. I don't even like people reading their own social security decisions because they will say things like, you know, uh, Dr. Smith indicated that this person is completely incapable of getting along with others. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a terrible thing to read about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, but, it, it is. And it, and it, it sometimes, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it does sometimes, um, change people's motivation for working on those things as well. Um, so right. I often I talk mean, to people as well. I, I'm going to write this letter, but if you read it, I want you to understand why I'm writing it in this way versus the way we've been talking about it. Occasionally I will, um, occasionally I will help doctors write letters and I always write the most aggressively helpful letters that I can, and then ask mental health providers to change up whatever they want. But um, I also, I mean, I do think that it's, I mean, and I tell everyone, everyone with any medical problem, anything bad for your health is great for your social security case. When you call me and say you had a stroke, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right. (laughs) Um, Bad for your health, great for your social security case. If you can't do things, it's great for your case, but it is extremely demoralizing. I mean, just imagine somebody in a hospital who's told they can never walk again. I mean, are they even motivated to try? No, Mm -hmm. they just believe one doctor when many people really can recover some capacity to walk again. So yeah, it's very, very tricky. Great. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for all of this information. It's been extremely helpful. And I know that anyone listening to this is going to find benefit from all the information that you provided. If they want to, if anybody listening wants to find you kind of, um, 
find your practice or follow some of the work that you're doing? Can you share where they might find you? Well, I'm sure I have a website, but I also feel pretty confident that if you, um, if you just Google Tracy Tyson Miller, Florida lawyer, you'll find Mm me. Let's see, where's my website. Oh, it looks like it's Tracy Tyson Miller.com. Well, it used to be, Hmm. (laughs) Huh. Do we not pay for that? What's going on there? I don't know. Um, so now I don't really know where it is. Um, but definitely if you search for Tracy Tyson Miller, Florida lawyer, it's no problem. And it's Tracy T-R-A-C-Y. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this final employment episode. We have two more episodes before we wrap up the MS series. Coming up next is an episode on managing cognitive challenges in the therapy room, and we will end the series with an episode discussing wilderness adventure programs to supplement and enhance what your patients are learning with you in therapy. Keep listening, subscribe, and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you would like continuing education credits for listening to this episode, go to findempathy.com backslash learn. Our goal is to help people living with challenging medical conditions find the mental health providers who understand their diagnosis. Our education and this podcast is focused on increasing the number of mental health providers who can help. If you are a psychologist or a mental health provider that specializes in health populations, please consider signing up on the free Find Empathy directory. Go to findempathy.com and select Get Listed. We would love to connect with you on social media. Look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have suggestions for topics you would like covered by this podcast, let us know. Our email is info at findempathy.com. Finally, please know that the opinions expressed by the experts today are their own. We are not financially supported by any of the businesses or resources described in today's podcast. Also remember that the content provided today is for educational purposes only. Please seek the guidance of your doctor or mental health provider for any questions you might have regarding your own health or medical condition. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to you joining us in the next episode.